Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. We also had the situation this week where Toronto Constable James Forsillo was sentenced to six years in prison for the shooting of 18-year-old Sammy Yatim on a streetcar. And Forsillo was sentenced to six years in prison for attempted murder after being found not guilty of second-degree murder. And it raised a lot of questions. And for some people, those questions still remain. David Butt joins me, former Crown attorney, now criminal defense lawyer in Toronto, one of the best in the country, who just wrote an op-ed piece in the Globe and Mail headlined, How to Select a Supreme Court Judge. David, it's good to have you you back with us. Would you please explain to us how it is that you can have, and let's go back to the beginning here, how can you have an attempt murder charge for Officer Forcillo after he was found not guilty of second-degree murder? How does that happen? It's a very unique situation, Roy. It does not happen uh, often, and uh, it's a little bit complicated. But here's the theory, and it appears that the jury accepted this theory. There were two volleys of shots that Constable Farcillo fired. They were separated by a very short period of time. But it appears the jury reasoned as follows. The first volley of shots during which Sammy Yatim, so the jury seems to have found, posed a lethal threat because he had the knife and, and it was a lethal threat that he may use it. So the jury reasoned that in the first volley of shots, Constable Fursillo was justified in discharging his firearm. Those shots, we know from the pathologists, were the ones that actually caused the fatal wounds. So the first set of shots that actually killed Mr. Yatim were justifiable. The jury acquitted of murder for that reason. The jury went on to reason, however, that the second volley of shots was unnecessary because Mr. Yatim no longer posed a threat. So it was those second, that second volley of shots that appears to be the foundation for the attempt murder conviction. So a very unique situation, a little bit complicated, but there you have it. Yeah. It's unusual to have an yeah, attempt indeed. murder charge laid after the the actual murder charge is is dismissed by the jury. So, so yes, and and both charges were laid initially at the very beginning of the case. So right. the charge wasn't laid after the acquittal of, for murder. They're both laid at the beginning, and the jury had to pick and choose what they would uh, do with each charge. So if you're the judge, and you have to now have to make a decision on a prison sentence um, for the for the individual. How complicated is that for the judge, or is it not complicated at all? No, it's extremely complicated, Roy. There's uh, a whole bunch of uh, things that a judge has to think about and balance and weigh. And we start with the the basic proposition that these things the judge has to think about and balance and weigh are are things that really can't be measured. So we've got the grief of the, the victim's family, the deceased family. How do you measure that in years in jail? It's impossible. You can't. You've got the need to uh, denounce criminal conduct. Of course, we all agree you have to be harsh with criminals, but what's the number that that equals the right degree of harshness? You can't say it with precision. Uh, Constable Farsillo, in many respects, was in a very sympathetic situation. As you said in your opening, you know, he was one of those officers responding to a dangerous situation. He was running towards it, not running away. And, you know, it's... uh, 
accepting the jury's verdict for what it is. It was an error in judgment in a split second. There's a lot of sympathy there, too. But what's the number that corresponds to, to the degree of sympathy? You can't put numbers on any of these things. So the judge really has a very, very tough choice of trying to represent these things in a number when they really can't be. So what it is, it's the best approximation that any human being can do in a situation like that. Is this uh, a verdict that is prime for um, an appeal? Yes, it's for, for a number of reasons. First of all, uh, it's, it's a very impactful verdict for both, obviously, the, uh, the tragedy of the loss of, of Mr. Yatim and for the fact that in a very rare situation in Canada, we get a police officer being sentenced to a, a relatively long prison sentence. So it's a very rare verdict. And, and for that reason, it's a good idea to take it to the higher court to review it, to just to make sure everything uh, unfolded correctly at trial. But the other reason is this. The defense is mounting an argument, and it's a thoughtful argument, that really it's, it's artificial to segment those two volleys of shots into two different events and acquit him for the first volley and convict him for the second one when what was really going on was one continuous transaction. So that's the defense argument. It's one that the appeal court should take a serious look at. It's one that's worthy of serious consideration. I can't say if it's automatically a winner or not, but it is certainly the kind of argument that should be heard by an appeal court. Dave, there's a, a lot being said about what message is being sent to police by the semi Yatim verdict. And then brought into the discussion, I've heard several times in private conversations um, and, and in public conversations, the, the Baltimore situation with Freddie Gray. The officers taken to trial were found not guilty. Officers charged with murder, second degree, I think it was. Other officers had their charges dismissed by an obviously unhappy prosecutor, Marilyn Mosby, earlier in the week. Now mm -hmm. five police officers are suing Mosby in court. And in San Diego, a police officer was shot and killed on Friday morning. There's a war on cops. You're a former prosecutor. You're a, you're a criminal defense lawyer. How, how do you put all of this together? Yeah, I, I think it's really important uh, to take each one of those cases and consider them individually on their own merit and not to get uh, inflamed with uh, angry conclusions one way or the other. Um, in other words, the police community, I would urge them not to jump to conclusions, say, well, everybody out there hates us and uh, um, retreat to a bunker mentality. And on the other hand, I would encourage people, uh, civilians, not part of the police officer community, Again, not to lump all these together and say all cops are bad and they're terrible and we've got to get rid of them or, you know, even worse. Uh, each case really has to be carefully looked at it on, his own, on its own facts. And uh, the bottom line is, as, as you again said in your opening, you know, are, are there some cops who go over the line sometimes? Absolutely. And do we have to look very carefully at those cases and, uh, and uh, meet out appropriate penalties? Yes, we do. But are we justified in... Uh, judging one cop and then extrapolating that to everyone and, and, you know, fomenting anger against police officers generally. No, that's irresponsible too. So it's very much a matter of taking each case calmly, rationally, looking at what actually happened and drawing judgments on individual cases. Yeah. 
Now, many times in this country, and recently, I think more than more than um, in in, uh, in in the last twenty years, let's say in the last three or four years, there have been cases that have made their way to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court has made more news, is what I'm trying to say, in the last few years than it has in a long time. I think there've been there've been cases which have really generated a, a lot of public discussion. And there's been a lot of talk about who is who makes up the Supreme Court of Canada. Who are these? Who are these judges? Who are these men and women in, in the uh, in the red robes? I think they wear red robes. Um, yeah. the, they, they started out as lawyers, and they were apparently good lawyers, but they were also appointed to the courts they eventually supervised or took took uh, took control of, and and they moved up the ladder, as it were. Uh, being appointed again by prime ministers, and then eventually a few of them, a very few, make it to the Supreme Court of Canada, which has the power and most recently has frequently, it seems, overruled Parliament, overruled the process, the parliamentary process, where a bill is brought before the men and women who are elected to uh, to manage our affairs. It, it passes three readings. It then goes to the Senate, and it's affirmed by the Senate. It becomes law. And a little while later, or a period of time later, it's challenged in court, and it goes all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada. And the Supreme Court says, no, this law isn't valid. It doesn't meet whatever test it should. Rewrite the law. We saw it on the uh, the uh, physician-assisted-to-death law. We saw it in prostitution legislation. You just wrote a column in the, uh, in the Globe and Mail on how to select a Supreme Court judge. It's fascinating. Would you stay with us and talk to us about that? Absolutely. There's no way you can say no after that introduction. <laughs> no, be glad to. All right. Uh, David Butt, we'll come back in a minute. So many cases, so many situations, so many cases, so many uh, events have, have suddenly found themselves, it appears to us, before the Supreme Court of Canada, which then makes a determination on whether or not the law is actually valid passes the tests it must in order to be a law. Even though it's been debated in Parliament, even though it's passed three readings, even though it's been affirmed by the Senate, the Supreme Court of Canada has the right to say no. And they do. Now, how do you select those men and women who make up the ultimate court in Canada? We'll talk to David Butt about that when we come back. 